welcome to the first ever episode of the South Asian Occupational Therapy Experience. I'm Sheila Ivlev, and joining me today are Sujata Martin, Priya Ravindran, and Dr. Sakshi Tiku. So I want to ask you all to just take a moment um, and introduce yourselves. Hi, everyone. I am Sujata Martin. I am an Indian American occupational therapist based in Buffalo, New York. I identify with a few labels. Um, I would say Indian American is very new with me being officially American just last November, less than a year actually. So very much still Indian at heart. Um, brand new American, uh, other labels I identify with as a she, her, I'm a mother, I'm a pelvic floor therapist. I love pelvic floor work. Um, I have a private practice treating uh, primarily women in pelvic health. And um, I love doing this. I love reaching people with more information about occupational therapy, more information about what I do, and more information about, you know, culturally sensitive care, I suppose. So I'm so glad, Sheila, that, you know, you invited me here. So thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Priya. I am a third year OT student here in Melbourne. Um, Victoria, Australia, um, and I'm currently working as an OT assistant and as a support worker. Um, I um, identify as a Sri Lankan Tamil, um, but I was born in Singapore and raised in Melbourne, so <laughs> there's a lot going on. Um, I also identify as she, her, um, and I'm really excited to be here and to be speaking with um, some really cool South Asian OTs. Um, and yeah, really excited. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Priya. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Sakshi Tiktu, a cisgender, queer, brown occupational therapist. Um, I was born and raised here in Mumbai, and I am a Mumbai-based occupational therapist who loves to talk about everything sexuality, mental health, wellness, rehabilitation, and all the other awesome stuff. Um, since I have been starting, starting with my practice as, so I continue working as a school-based OT for about like a year. I'm a new grad practitioner, but I recently started my private practice with Sex Love and OT, where I address more about sexuality and all the other good stuff that I mentioned. And I think that has been one of the ways that I could have connected with more South Asian OTs and not just from India, but global South Asian OTs. And I think that is exactly how we all have landed together in this, in this picture and this, in this podcast. So thank you, Sheila, for having this here. Yeah, thank you for being here. I, I love that um, we're South Asian, but we're spread all over the globe. So it's amazing that we're able to connect this way. Um, so I'm Sheila. Um, I identify as she, her. I am first generation American. Uh, my parents are from India and I have a wellness-based occupational therapy um, practice that is fully virtual right now, thanks to COVID, but that's given me some time uh, to be able to work on some of these other projects that I think are, are absolutely important um, just to me and especially to, um, to our profession. So today we're gonna be talking about challenging culture-based occupation in a Western frame from a South Asian perspective. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of a mouthful, um, but I wanted to start off with some like 
basic trivia facts about South Asia. Um, so the countries that are included in South Asia include Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, the Maldives, Nepal, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. So the population in South Asia is about 1.9 billion. And then across the diaspora, there are about 24 million of us. We've, we speak over 650 languages and the predominant religions that we practice are Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Judaism, and Zoroastrianism. And it's important to note that our cultures have been influenced over the centuries from um, invasions from different nations, trade, as well as colonization. So we might be a very small region, but we re represent great cultural, ethnic, and linguistic diversity. So I think we'll learn that like each of us has different perspectives despite being from the same region. So um, Sujata, would you like to start with the history of occupational therapy? Um, so as far as health professions go, occupational therapy is without a bias, I can say almost as holistic, as open to people's identities and meeting people where they are at as any medical profession that I have either worked with or known about, interacted with as a patient or as a colleague. So I would say as far as a health profession, we are already set up to identify and relate with people where they are. But recognizing that occupational therapy as a profession originated in um, the Western world, or what we think of as the Western world, in um, the US, UK, Canada, with a lot of the founders or um, the founding fathers, founding mothers of occupational therapy being um, white American therapists who did fabulous, fantastic work, work that was meaningful to the population that they were working with, again, predominantly white Americans, and a lot of the literature we are using right now to educate future OTs. A lot of the literature we refer back to when designing interventions are again based in those origins in that Western white identity. So when we do treatment planning or when we do assessments, there is, and this is my experience being an occupational therapist in, um, in mostly urban and suburban uh, United States, how we have been trained um, to assess and treat is with this big focus on independence, on ADL independence, on IADL independence. And oftentimes, because of how we have always been doctrinated with this kind, okay, this is your focus of treatment. This is what your treatment should revolve around. We, even I have done this mistake, being a South Asian occupational therapist myself, is I've forgotten sometimes to understand like, hey, though, is this really relevant to this person's context? And again, I'm hoping that through this medium, we reach therapists who want to help their clients from diverse backgrounds, including South Asians. And as Sheila, you've identified, South Asians are now everywhere in the globe, you know, maybe possibly without Antarctica, maybe too cold for us, but besides <laughs> that, we're almost everywhere. So no matter where you're listening in from, you probably are going to have some South Asian clients. So 
having an understanding of our culture is going to help you relate to your client better is going to help you design more um, relevant interventions get better outcomes but because you're going to get better buy in from your um, from your client so again remembering that the origins have of this profession are mostly from a white western identity and a lot of um, the frameworks we think of um let's see like the ot domain and framework process even if we consider that a lot of how we are how those areas are broken down there is very little emphasis i will say in that towards like social support systems it is definitely mentioned but for someone and again i'm speaking for someone who is south asian who um identifies as hindu and i let i'm sure all of you have input on this as well for most south asians across religious identities across um if they grew up in rural areas if they grew up in urban areas family structure social support interdependence is much more important and that is why when i was in ot school the kava model of occupational therapy practice really resonated with me i'm like there that is how you will work with me because that makes sense to me where it's a whole um life um a life process kind of model where you take into um consideration all these factors not necessarily just the physical environment and do can this person get their shoes on can they tie their laces you know versus um compared to breaking up into tasks of that nature i really appreciated how it truly took into consideration and left flexibility honestly because what is my social support system is going to be very different from another south asian person support system who work who lives in a joint family who lives in the same home with their in-laws and their um cousins and things like that their social support system are going to be totally different or for example at the other extreme i am i would say still an anomaly i am a south asian and i'm married to an american a uh, white american so again people often make the assumption with me that oh didn't you have an arranged marriage you know so again just because someone looks a certain way doesn't mean that they are going to fit into this typecast identity we create for them so i love the kava model for um, for instance for that reason because again it gives you this open structure to fit that person's life context in when you design an intervention so just something to consider for ot practitioners for ot students listening to this that what we learn in our textbooks what your supervisor or field work coordinator is teaching you may not necessarily be relevant to our um to the diaspora to immigrant populations and again uh, where we are located in the united states i'm guessing a lot of our listeners are going to be from here we are um receiving again i'm sure a lot of um refugee influx a lot of immigrant influx with all the changes happening in the world so we need to be comfortable providing culturally competent care so um that's very important to recognize and also i wanted to mention is that it's wonderful that a lot of professions are recognizing the cultural differences and how they affect health outcomes or how they affect like patient goals but there is this um focus on cultural competence and that has made me laugh honestly because how can you be competent in a culture that you have never lived in for a single day of your life 
you know there goes that patriarchal mindset again of i know better than you i am competent in your culture you know so that itself is the whole god complex that often exists in healthcare systems where the provider is you know oh i am the boss person you do what i tell you it kind of perpetuates that the idea of cultural competence so if we shift that and think of cultural sensitivity or cultural humility in that hey i know something about your culture this is what i know how does this apply to you is this relevant to you you know that would make more sense and that would help us give our clients better care that would help us be better therapists because you connect with your patient better you know um and just to make it real i have a relative kind of like a second third um relation um like an in law relation based in the united states now she's an older lady she's in her 70s now had a knee surgery had an inpatient rehab stay with both pt and ot for those familiar with rehab systems in the united states you get for like two or three weeks you get both therapy disciplines about 30 to 60 minutes of intensive rehab and the poor lady she and, and this could be again this could be completely her fault i'm not trying to place blame but the focus of rehab is so much on range of motion can you get your shoes on now she told me they kept making me get my shoes on and you know that wasn't relevant to her she lives with her sons adult sons who are more than happy to help her doing her laces using a sock aid wasn't relevant to her if you had told her hey how will you sit down and do your puja you know how will you sit down in the temple for your prayers or you have your granddaughter how will you play with her on the floor you know if that was the kind of intervention that was used i'm sure you would have gotten better compliance so again that's what i mean by how how the how cultural sensitivity or cultural humility can improve outcomes you know it would definitely have improved her outcome so this person then had to get a revision because the first one didn't work well it wasn't rehabbed well just poor outcomes for the client and then as a therapist as a care provider you don't feel as good and you feel like hey i i missed something out you know i didn't do as good a job so i think that conversations like these are very important and again with the whole black lives matter movement that has been happening in the united states we have seen a lot of positive change where important conversations about race and racially sensitive care and culturally sensitive care is happening which is wonderful and not just in the us it has kind of popped up in other areas also like i'm connected um with my family still lives in india and there definitely is a lot of like colorism in indian society again a different conversation but there is improvement coming over there because of like blm conversations happening here so the ripple effect you know and again i'm hoping that this conversation creates that ripple where a practitioner listening or a student listening is able to provide some more culturally relevant care to their patient to their client and i hope that they feel comfortable they feel comfortable asking the right questions and not you know feel awkward or hesitant you know in bringing up these um questions to their um, to their clients so again recognize where ot came from remember to recognize that what our textbooks say may not be relevant to our client 
remember that you cannot be competent in a culture you have not lived in that you have not experienced firsthand no matter what books you read and um, keep it centered around them no person is going to mind a very respectful question of what matters to you is this relevant to you what would you want to work on you know and bring that into your treatment so that's my little piece that's what i have to say thank you sujata there is like so much to unpack there but i have to start with kind of like what's at the top of my head i want to ask everybody here as south asians who wears shoes in their house i i want i would love to hear which one of you wears shoes in the house um no nobody yes. <laughs> no <laughs> what are yeah. shoes you just can't wear them inside the house right so so we have modernized to wearing socks but then that's just like a desperate attempt at saying oh we are going to have track heels that's it no shoes yeah. yeah so like you know when you're thinking of culturally relevant um interventions if if you're in a facility and you're doing something every day if if you're a 70 plus year old person and you're not super active outside of the home or if you're leaving the home like you said somebody's going to be helping you maybe you don't need to put the shoes on cuz you're not going to wear them in the home so that was one piece but i i wanted to take a step back and and um you know you started off by um talking about how holistic we are right um but then you have this juxtaposition of we're very holistic but we only look at the individual person and we only look at their independence and we're not really taking into consideration for so many people in the world as well as wherever you're practicing because we are a global community right there are um immigrants of multiple generations in every single country right um so south asians were absolutely everywhere and so you know if you aren't looking at the family systems if you aren't looking at the community if you aren't looking at there might be multiple generations within one home that is part of your own identity like how do you separate that so um maybe i can pose this to priya because you are a practitioner um and you're also a student so you know you're you have your south asian background you're practicing as an ot assistant and then you're also learning these these um you know principles in school so um just you know how does like all that hit you so i you know um i do think about like oh like before i you know go to their house like for example i i have like i ask them like is it okay if i can wear my shoes in here like is you know cuz that's also something that's important for yeah and um i don't know like it's it it kind of i've sort of had to think about those things outside of what i've been taught at um uni like i haven't really been aside from you know kind of talking a little bit about cultural competence in like the broad scheme of things um a lot of like the case studies and the clients that we come across they're not um they more often than not um don't have a um different cultural background and more often than not um of like australian or they're just white <laughs> like yeah so um I don't know it's kind of um I suppose it's there's a lot of independence for me in terms of learning how to be culturally aware and practice um cultural competence because um yeah it's not really something that is covered in detail um in my studies yeah and I'm just going to say I hate case studies like it's absolutely <laughs> absurd to 
come up with this like case scenario and assume that everybody with that identity that identity acts that way or lives that way, right? Like we've already established that South Asians are very different. There are South Asians that wear their shoes in their house. I'm sure there are. I don't know them, uh, but they exist, right? <laughs> so like these case studies, like I don't I don't know if anybody has propositions of like how else you can learn. Obviously, we've identified just freaking ask somebody, right? Like ask them what's important to them, ask them how they live, ask them if this is okay to do or not. Um, but outside of case studies, like how else can we learn these things? Because the books only teach you one way. And like you said, OT was made by and for, um, up, you know, middle to upper class white people. And that's who's still in those case studies. That's still who's represented in the books and the assessments and the interventions and everything. Yeah. Um, I do want to actually mention that um, so I'm currently doing an online placement and it's all about case studies so it's <laughs> probably be horrible for you Sheila. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> um, and there's about like 23, 24 case studies um, in the list of kind of like in the website where we get them from and there is like all of them, all of the clients are of like an Australian, like white Australian background. And I was kind of, um, yeah, just a little bit disappointed because there's so many case studies there. Like you've gone to the effort of putting in so many case studies, but how come there is no cultural diversity here? Um, so yeah, I was, yeah, a bit yeah. bummed about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, this is, I'm going off topic, but this is online. We are a global community. Um, our profession's yeah. 103 years old. Like, I think it's time to catch up. Why can't you do a case study with an actual person, right? Like, why can't I show up as a case study? And you can actually ask me as a human questions. Like, why does it have to be this book where you fill in blanks? And we all know we see things from our own lens, right? So if you're filling in blanks, you're mm. filling in blanks based on what you know, not necessarily the reality of the other person. Yeah. Definitely. Um, it's almost like, you know, how um, like Kamala Harris has just been elected as vice president. Um, and a lot of, um, I've, I've seen a lot of like uh, videos of like on Instagram and just like social media of people being like, hey, she looks like me. So like a lot of the time I'm like, why isn't there anyone that looks like me in my like case studies? Like, <laughs> why is that not explored? I don't get it. Right. I mean, representation is going to help diversify our profession, right? So more people can see themselves as OTs. But also, you know, when we're talking about um, racial disparities in healthcare and like treating people equity equitably, right? If you don't know how to treat a person from a different background, that's when you mm -hmm. have all these issues. Um, mm -hmm. So actually, I wanted to ask from, from your perspective as a South Asian actually living in South Asia, is there anything that you wanted to add to this conversation? It's completely strange because um, even though people think that I'm sure, it's for me, I had to unlearn like a bunch of stuff. So the moment I started with my private practice, I was actually, strangely, more people outside of India started connecting with, connecting with me through Instagram. So if, even though I had established something within India, being an Indian, there was... <laughs> The connectivity or you know it, it seemed more relatable to people outside of here and and that is where that's where the whole tricky part became because i was I've, i'm a 100 percent trained practitioner and a student in understanding how i can deal with any indian 
or any person from who has uh, some sort of a cultural diversity based in India, right? So I I know that I'm one hundred percent trained in that. But the moment I started having students or um, you know clients who want who wanted to seek help with these areas of sexuality, I was <laughs> I was scared because nobody was telling us that this is something that could happen. You know, there could be somebody, even though we are in India, I think there could be somebody outside of this place that you could be talking to or speaking to someday. And and Sujata rightly when she said cultural competence, and I'm so sorry that I learned about cultural fluidity so late that you know, and that is when I realized that the competence has got nothing to do with it because I'm still sitting in India. So I am culturally competent in a way. I am at least for my culture. But then, what I lack is a cultural fluidity because I know absolutely everything about what South Asia has to offer. But it's just like a tiny part of it, right? There's there's still an entire globe that's still over there, and I have absolutely no idea about it. Yeah, and what's interesting, we've had a conversation about this before. Your education was actually a very Western. OT education, even though your practice is in South Asia, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we we had case studies about white people. <laughs> Interventions were done on brown people, <laughs> and that is how it went. And it makes absolutely zero sense. It makes absolutely zero sense. So we have the opportunity of having uh, more hands-on cases where it's where people are our case case studies. However, they were asking. So initially, like when you still do not have a lot of contact and you are still thinking about what models and approaches do you want to use, we still are clueless about all of these things because the case studies that we get to refer to, or any case studies basically on the internet, is about a white person and how that white person has been treated, which does which which absolutely makes no sense in an Indian context to my client or to me. Yeah, so you really actually have to practice that cultural humility, that cultural sensitivity and responsiveness, because like everything you learn doesn't apply to your clientele. Exactly, <laughs> just like the way I kept telling people that we have to ask pronouns before we meet our client, I made sure that I take out those fifteen minutes separately to understand their culture, so that I'm not missing something out, and I can still go back. I can still understand what are the things that they do in their culture. If my client is very hesitant to tell me about it, I know certain things. They can tell me a certain thing, so that I am better prepared to serve them. You know, and those questions can get really awkward, and for them initially, it does not make any sense. But then throughout the rehabilitation process, it just makes me more grateful about them, and it makes them realize that this is how it's supposed to be done. And because nobody's going to ask you questions about your ethnicity or what cultural background you're from, or you know how religious you are, what spirituality means to you, there's so many components to it. And even though we have these models made up saying that you know this is about Canadian model, this is how it is. There will be a spirituality core, there will be a social core, there will be a cultural core. We aren't really questioning them about any of these things and how and how much it matters to them. So. <laughs> And it, it becomes so shocking for them that somebody is actually going to ask them these intrusive questions. But it, at the end of the day, it genuinely does help. 
Yeah. And that's like the perfect segue. Um, Priya, you're going to be talking a little bit about the importance of identity. I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how important cultural identity is um, to uh, mainly the South Asian diaspora um, and I suppose um, people who are kind of in my age range as well. So I'm 22 and I'm going through kind of a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe uh, a dilemma of, well, how much do I identify um, as a Sri Lankan Tamil and how much do I identify as an Australian? Because I do um, relate to aspects of both um, cultures. Um, and that kind of just has got me thinking a lot. And um, we recently completed a subject on mental health and uh, part of that focused on youth mental health. And um, well, we kind of didn't really touch on that at all, how differences in identity can, or like within ourselves can kind of clash and can be, really difficult to kind of figure out. And I suppose I'm not even really sure if it's something that you do figure out until you're a lot older, but you know, it's kind of, I feel like around this age that I'm at is where a lot of people start thinking about that kind of thing. And that can um, lead to a lot of things like anxiety and um, just confusion and even depression and, I know that it's like just something that a lot of people battle with. So I was really confused as to why it wasn't really spoken about um, when I was studying. And um, of course, um, this is all kind of reflection in hindsight. Like as I was studying, it was just like, okay, yeah, like this is what I'm being taught. So I'm not going to question it. Like you guys have mentioned, like it's kind of just provided, like it's in the textbook, that's how we do it. Um, we're not going to question it. So, you know, as of more recently, um, having conversations with people like you and people on pages like um, students and OTs of colour um, on Facebook, you know, it's um, really opened my mind into kind of thinking about these sorts of things. And um, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that and maybe um, hear a little bit about your perspectives in terms of when you were studying um, as uh, to become OTs, um, was cultural identity something that was touched on um, a lot or not as much or, um, yeah, I'm just really keen to know. Yeah, I, I, I wanna share um, Priya. So I think, um, I believe um, Sujata and Sakshi, you can tell us if, if you feel the same way, but. I, I was born and raised um, in one country. My parents are from another. And my mom grew up telling me that I am not American. Like she would remind me constantly that I am not American. So I've had this, like, I'll call it a cultural crisis really, right? Like I'm, I'm, um, I'm multicultural and I'm 38 now. And I still have these issues. And like the more that I learn about um, how like colonization and how my ancestral culture is very different than like the the generational cultures of my parents and my grandparents you know I'm stuck here like what's going on who am I I'm not Indian enough I'm not American enough like where do I fit in so 
you're definitely not, you're not alone. And I feel like this happens um, with different age groups. And, you know, I guess it, it hits you when you, it hits you and it probably hits you again. <laughs> so I wanted to see if, if anybody else, I, I know um, Sujata, you, you studied and practiced in India for a little bit, and then you came to the United States. So I'm sure you have the same like, you know, cultural identity, like clashes or crises, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, to an extent for sure. Um, the one of the big things I ran into initially was again what Sakshi experienced a little bit in like how I was educated was we use reachers and sockets. And again, while my practice in India and while doing my field works there, I had never seen a reacher till I stepped foot in the United States, but almost every OT textbook we open. There's the the hip kit, the reacher, the socket, blah blah blah, and it could I could never wrap my head around it, and I'm like, really, this is what we do, you know? It just felt like silly to me because it was not relevant to what we did, and so for me, just like Sakshi mentioned, I had to learn and become competent or become sensitive to the culture here. On that, like, hey, people here, like the average white American really puts independence on a pedestal so that reacher is very relevant because I was like why won't they just have their grandkid pick it up you know or <laughs> leave it till someone else can do it you know so I had to do that learning in that way and I also um, faced this in our therapy community from some faculty and not in a bad way per se, but there definitely is this white savior identity that we see a lot in the rehab profession. Um, I know a lot of universities encourage like mission trips and things to like this um, other parts of the world, but it's often in, I know they are helping, they are providing very important skills but I hope that these students and these professionals see like they're gaining something in return. I hope that is there because the way I felt it, like I remember doing this one wheelchair seating and positioning class and the professor was talking about how it is so innovative about where they have standing wheelchairs that elevate a person so they can come up to like cupboard height and open things and access things and then they can go over curbs which is very innovative and which is very um, it's great advances in technology it's very very relevant at the same time i and they asked for examples and i thought it was very innovative and very creative and again, very relevant to our context, like I, I um, studied in Mumbai where Sakshi did as well. We are um, resource rich in certain ways, but not in other ways. The place, the place I studied, it was um, attached to a government run hospital, which provided like no cost or extremely low cost treatment to people who couldn't afford private therapy services or private healthcare. So a great system, but in the end, the often therapists had to make do and innovate to provide things that these patients could not afford. So I literally have seen therapists make wheelchairs from lawn chairs. They would dismantle bicycles, attach them to a lawn chair, like a plastic lawn chair, and there's a transport wheelchair for the patient, something the patient can afford. 
locally sourced material it can go over the surfaces in the environment it is waterproof has no moving parts that will get rusted in the wet environment of you know mumbai and i thought that was amazing and it seemed like my class wasn't impressed at all <laughs> my professor wasn't impressed they were just like what you think that's a novation a launcher with wheels but you know to me that is like how resourceful of that first therapist who thought of that you know to provide such a low quality intervention so it's accessible to so many people and then again the client when they're receiving that they don't feel like oh my god i'm receiving such a huge favor this is like oftentimes the things the patient themselves sourced so again when they are when you're working with someone who doesn't have the economic resources we meet them where they are at that is still a technologically advanced intervention in a way you know in that context so i also hope that if there are faculty members or field work coordinators listening to this who organize those trips and they again they provide very valuable services by um either providing one on one intervention to people who are in um distant communities or in communities where there aren't as many therapists as there is need for rehabilitation i hope they realize that you know you are providing valuable service and i hope they get something in return i hope they like that whole savior complex just throws me off a little and again meeting people where they are at and recognizing that again what we think as important may not be as important that difference in identity i felt is that people automatically thought that because i am from a country that is thought of as second or third world in this part of the world that automatically interventions from there weren't as advanced or weren't as deserving of merit you know it was like poor people stuff i don't know what to call it but just because of where it came from it wasn't as respected as something else that came from like a western context yeah and and thank you for bringing those points up again like so much to unpack the the saviorism especially right like people kind of don't want to go there and don't want to talk about it but like that is our profession like let's be real social work ot um you know we we help people we help them be independent um because we don't think they can do it themselves that's the reality um so um there's like i'm going to go a little bit off topic and there there ha- there has actually been a lot of information on like these wheelchairs right people donate and bring wheelchairs to these different countries um to help people with mobility issues but then what ends up happening is these places that they like donate to teach people how to use them they don't have the resources to fix and re- you know replace parts and so these become like completely obsolete completely useless and people who either like had a functional way or like a way of working with their community to be able to to access um the outside they they kind of lose that connection and then here they're stuck with this like piece of crap that doesn't work um that they can't do anything with um so you know in my mind i'm like saviorism is when somebody doesn't ask you for help and you think they need help right like are you really looking at how they're functioning do they need this um like is it what you think they need yes um yeah just to add a little bit there i had this wonderful colleague wonderful heart coming from the best intentions she would do mission trips to india specifically and she would ask me oh where are you from blah 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 and every time she went she would literally take like 8 or 10 manual wheelchairs like each of these chairs weigh a good like 
50 60 pounds so that's like yeah. 120 130 like kilos that's hard you know to navigate over like uneven surfaces some roads are not even tarred you know it is such an obsolete like it's like burning setting fire to your money you know if you truly wanted to help people you would help them like set up use those funds in a way that they could develop it using local resources. So, you know, again, it is very well-intentioned, but clearly no one in that program, no one in that mission trip bothered to ask the program director in that location, hey, do you really need these heavy-ass wheelchairs to be shipped all the way across continents to give to you where your patients probably can't use it anyway? They probably can't go even over the curb. They probably can't leave their home in it. You know, it was such like well-intentioned, but a useless intervention. Sakshi, do you have any thoughts on like the juxtaposition of cultures or some of us coming in and, and saving, um, saving Indians? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to add to what Sujata said, because uh, <clears throat> there is there's this whole idea, even when we are here in India, we have this idea about how amazing the Western culture is or you know, how we need to transform ourselves within that culture so that you know, we sort of just get more acceptable. And there's and that example of getting a wheelchair from like getting it imported from outside or sort of giving it to clients, it's just a way of telling them that we are as advanced as physiotherapy. That is, that is the line that has been constantly used when we are sort of talking about occupational therapy or even when we are trying to introduce AIDS into occupational therapy practice. And the whole idea, AIDS was supposed to be complementary, right? They, we sort of make it low cost because there are people who can't afford anything. They are, they are practically receiving therapy at a free cost. And at that point of time, you sort of, um, introduce uh, introduce a Western culture where where they are saying that you know this people can get it covered with insurance there they have facilities uh, of sort sort of they, they it just get sort of laid off they do not have monetary issues not something that they really need to care about which is not the situation here and and practically most of the things that happen even with the whole cultural identity here comes from the idea that do we still want to make our interventions look US-based? So they need to be like American certified for them to be acceptable in, an, in a South Asian community. I particularly speak for an Indian community, but that, that is the whole picture. Once, once it's US certified, it is India certified, indirectly. When you're still trying to absorb information and trying to understand what happens, um, for me, for the longest time, uh, whatever U.S. said or anything, any research article that U.S. thought was uh, deemed worthy of, you know, being published, putting out there as research or evidence-based practice, I thought, yes, this is this is exactly what it is. When when we actually started practicing, none of it could have, none of the things that were there that I could have applied into my practice. You know, so it's like, <laughs> it's sort of like, even though, we are not there. We are still living in an uh, identity crisis here, which which is not which is not even called for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I won't go in too far into history, but like, you know, if you look at um, specifically Indian culture, right? We were colonized, right? So we yeah. really do 
even if people won't admit it, like we really do look up to that like white dominant culture. That is how we were, that's how we were brought up. Most of South Asia does have that influence. And so like, whether we are aware of it or willing to admit it or not, like that American or Western white culture is like what we aspire to do, to be, and we don't even question it when we're like stripping our own identities um, to conform to it. Like, there's really no other way to say it. It's, it's a different kind of crisis and we don't even need it. Yeah. <laughs> we already have so much to deal with. And I don't know, <laughs> it's a different kind of crisis that I personally did not think would be happening. Like, come going back to where I said that, just learning cultural fluidity, sitting in my house in Mumbai, I did not see that kind of a cultural crisis, right? It was not something that I was looking forward to or I, you know, would have thought that this could have happened. So just the, just the basis of like starting where we had started, just the whole sensitivity, the lack of sensitivity or just the conscious awareness that this is something that could have happened can just have such a, like, it just has such a bad takeover on the way that we sort of have our perception and you know what what identities do we hold or what does our what meaning culture holds just for us i think even just as a human as a practitioner let's not even go there but even as a person i think it's 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 quite different yeah yeah so now that we've established that we're all completely confused about our cultural identities um how do we address occupations with a cultural context knowing that like we are like, we're absolutely all over the place. So for me, I think there was this one um, point when I was still in my final year, I, I was actually having a word um, with one of my clients uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia, but then a really great chef. Um, uh, he, he owned a bakery here and, and used to make all of these things. And you know, we sort of got into conversation and I was talking to him as to why did he choose baking? So he was quite aware, he had good insight of that he has schizophrenia, but was admitted every now and then whenever he had some hallucination episodes. Um, so when we started talking about, you know, what does baking mean to him? How has it helped him to, you know, manage his medications with his symptoms and everything else? Um, it was such a beautiful experience to see him talk about occupations and meaning in, in in a completely different way and and that is when because we have this habit of you know sort of asking clients to just socialize and it's basically interventions that were imposed we were not really thinking thinking by interventions through that this is supposed to be client-centered but rather any mental health intervention was generalized so everybody will be playing carom everybody will be doing gardening which does not make sense to him. And, and he constantly kept saying no to all of these things because he was not interested in gardening. And it makes sense, right? It makes sense. He is a chef, he owns a bakery, and that is what adds meaning to his life. And while gardening can be a great hobby, everybody was like perfectly fine with socializing and et cetera, et cetera. The meaning that an occupation held for him and the way that it transformed his life even with his diagnosis, was something that made me realize that there are two types of occupations that we are looking into in, in a cultural, culture-based uh, setup. One is something that we do on a daily basis. Like, it's, it's a routine. 
you know we, it's 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 like a i don't say it's a burden some of them are some of them aren't but then it's like a responsibility that is being thrown on you and you're doing it just because it's supposed to be done and others actually hold some meaning for you and the differentiation and understanding that they even in a culture first of all culture based occupations boom mind blowing but then understanding that these occupations can digress to such different paths where some of them is just a routine for them which makes no sense to them but are supposed to be done and some of them are actually really really meaningful for them and this is how they want to continue their life and this is what gives them purpose or sort of you know keeps them going ahead and for some of them a routine even with and i think this this was like i still find it more highlighted in sexuality and mental health practices it could be different for any other practice honestly it could be but then this this aspect is just so so can be so beautifully highlighted especially in in these practice areas because even even when i was talking to clients with substance um, substance use and for them uh, just getting back to like switching from alcohol to have eating chewing gum 10 times in a day just to satisfy whatever oral needs we are talking about made no sense and i mean you know at some point if you could have told them that you know it's okay it's okay it's an occupation i mean you are talking about alcohol to a north indian they are basically married you cannot separate that and there and some of it does come from your culture some of it does comes from like you know like the, i should can i say genetics i'm not sure <laughs> i would like to believe so but i think even genetics and cultural background it is going to be there that is exactly how you are raised and and the memories or you know sort of your experience that have been associated with some of these some of these things alcohol is just like one of the one of those things but then we have this clear cut idea of this is an occupation that's not supposed to be done which which is really not up to us to decide honestly if it's not hurting or harming anybody i think it's not up to us to decide that this occupation is not supposed to be done so even for meaning in in a routine occupation or in a meaningful occupation is something that should be given to the client and we honestly aren't giving it to them at least i i understood that as a as a student that we were and it was so unfair it was so unfair not to to not let them have the kind of you know just just the just the space to express themselves and to express what meaning and purpose actually means to them for a 60 year old here past that you know oh you can do this this is your adl you have to continue doing this you can go out for a walk you can go go out and talk to your friends he doesn't care about that He he said, "I'm old. I've done my work. I'm going to sit at home and chill. You don't tell me what I'm supposed to do, which is fair. Which is fair. And you know, it's it's moments like these when we were like stripped down from. <laughs> in you know, like the clients actually took it on themselves that you know you you are not the boss of me. And even in such a setup where people actually consider therapists and doctors as gods, we do that in in India." there have been people who have touched our feet saying that thank you for doing this we are better now so from from being considered as a god to being told that you are not the boss of us that it like there has been such a dime like a spectrum of experiences that just tell you that you know we are still 
forgetting the whole basis and the foundation that human engagement will give you purpose and it will add meaning to your life as long as you allow the clients to let you know you, you're giving them the power to decide that this is what is meaningful this is my occupation and you don't get to decide what's right and what's wrong i'm i'm thinking about people that are listening that may not have been exposed to um south asian culture might not you know have had um clients or patients or even like friends that they've interacted with and so you know here we are saying okay like these are some things to consider um if you're working with people from a south asian background and then we're like but at the same time we're also saying like this individual is very very different and so like i think navigating that space if you're not comfortable if you're not really familiar um with our background like what are some things that people like advice that you have or some considerations like i think one thing we kept saying is just ask people like it's really not that complicated like just ask people but still sometimes like thinking about like making sure that i'm saying it in a respectful way am i asking something that might offend somebody so like what are some considerations um to be able to be providing like culturally responsive care but at the same time recognizing that we aren't monolithic for from my experience how i sort of work even with um people clients who are not just based in uh, or just south asian clients or asian clients anybody else i sort of i really really like to question them saying that oh i have previously had a client with this cultural ethnicity and i'm not really sure so they had something of this 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 things and this is what mattered to them is it how it's for you or if not you know you can just walk me through how what culture matters to you or how how like a typical day looks for you what purpose or meaning things hold for you etc etc it's like activity analysis but on the client's entire life that's all so rather than just one activity you are just trying to talk about what holds meaning for them and what isn't and sometimes i like to come come clean saying that you know i haven't worked with a client of this this culture and so if you think that there's something really important for me to know about your culture that that holds really that holds some meaning and importance to you please let me know because there are some culturally sensitive things because for us this is this is what matters and it may not matter to you so let me know if i am being i'm making a complete fool of myself and <laughs> i'm doing something that does not really matter to you so you know just come forward have a word it it always starts awkward i mean there's no other way to do it it's always awkward there's a random person talking to a random person and they are you're sort of asking them all of these life personal life questions um nobody knows how to answer them especially if four of us are here we have we are all we are already having this cultural crisis and we go back to some other therapist and they are asking the lord all of these personal questions are like just shut up don't ask me all of these questions but eventually it all adds up and it's just like a 10 minute awkwardness but it makes it makes huge difference if you're going to see this patient or a person long term yeah and i think that that piece about being humble recognizing like in this instance and my opinion is in every instance i don't think we're the experts i don't care what degree you have and how many years of experience you have the person that you work are working with has lived their life longer than you have been working with them or possibly doing what you're doing right um so you know those are just things like be humble it's okay to do something wrong um it's okay to to ask from a place of humility i love what sakshi said about just coming out and asking that question about hey this is what is important to you but you can also kind of pick up cues from the person's environment 
for instance when you first walk into the house do you see other shoes by the door then you understand the expectation is to take your shoes off for instance i did have a coworker who was extremely offended because how can you tell me to take my shoes off i don't know if the house is clean and um it just put me back a bit like did you see if they were wearing any footwear i'm sure or they, she said something like oh where do they think i have been you know so it wasn't understanding it wasn't a commentary on her hygiene or her shoes being dirty but just take a look around you know it seems like this is what everyone does you know so take cues from the environment keep it open ended and ask you know ask questions i will say though most south indian cultures have this very strong sense of like interdependence with their families most of them and again there's always exceptions to the rule and there is this idea of like respect or showing or giving thanks in kind to care providers so to care providers like doctors mental health professionals such as therapists and often nine times out of 10 when you are done treating a south asian family will try to feed you they'll try to give you food <laughs> they will try and send you back with something i've heard like traditional italian families are the same way we are very proud about our food and so i would say even if you are not sure how good the food is if you if indian food gives you heartburn or pakistani food gives you heartburn say thank you take it dump it if you have to but don't say no you know because that becomes like a very personal thing because for that patient it's like the least they can do you know like they are so thankful they are so happy to have you especially if you're doing things like home care and home care for a while and there would be people who would want to come and you have to sit and eat with me and i would just be like this person doesn't wash their hands after going to the bathroom i don't know if i want to eat this so i would be like can i have it to go i have someone waiting for me <laughs> and then <laughs> so again you know be tactful when you have to so if you are met with a south asian family of that sort you know take it don't um, say no to of course again um, employers will have rules about gifts you can accept and things like that because people will try to give you gifts again it's a very like generous kind of culture we like to show love we like to show respect we like to show thanks so accept what you can um look at your environment take cues take cues from that and again um this i would say one additional thing it honestly applies across cultures to people um for instance just um an example for me when i did home care where you would have to at the beginning of the day call your patient and be like hey i have you and on the on the schedule for 10 o'clock can i come see you for your session so there was this um african american patient a female patient in her 60s a chronic cardiac condition and she was known to be like quote unquote bad patient would not open the door would not answer her phone multiple early discharges from therapy for non compliance so and she came to my case load i was the newbie i got stuck with like the tough patient you know who never answers the phone so she answered the phone she saw me and then i kind of had that background of hey this person doesn't like to engage in therapy so i just talked to her 
and asked what was important to her. I saw pictures in her home of her husband. So I asked her, hey, you know, how did you meet? And she talked about dancing. And I'm like, this is a great intervention. So instead of sitting there and doing like shoulder flexion, shoulder abduction, we start doing some dancing. And guess who saw me two times a week or every week? You know, she never canceled a session. So again, keeping that relevant to the person. So it wasn't like she was being bad. She was being non-compliant. It just didn't make sense to her. She's a heart patient. She gets out of breath and you start tell her to do weights and exercises, TheraBand. You know, she's like, I'm not like wasting my two good hours of the day on this. So again, I feel like from this discussion, I hope people take this information back and not just apply it to like South Asian populations, but to other populations. Again, think like, hey, what could be relevant to this person? You know, um, trying to think of it that way, just because again, we are such a diverse community, though I will say being South Asian, um, um, being Indian Sri Lankan, we are a lot more advantaged than other immigrant populations, at least in the US. Like we are seeing a lot of um, immigrants coming from the Middle East who may not have the resources or who may not have this language that you and all of us have to put forth and share this information with others, you know, that, hey, this is what my culture does or this, you cannot be competent in my culture. They may not feel empowered to say that, you know, because of, I don't know, their immigration status or however they feel. Maybe they're not competent in English. Maybe their primary language is something else. So again, I, um, it's very important, I think, Sheila, what you're doing, this conversation, but I hope people, listeners, um, take this beyond the boundaries of just South Asia and consider us as, okay, this is one demographic putting into words how they want to be treated and how they should treat. And other similar demographics may have quite similar feelings, or maybe they are different, but ask them about it. You know, don't apply your textbook principles to them because it's not relevant. That's just the basic truth. Yeah, and I appreciate that, especially picking up those like those contextual environmental cues, right? That that applies to absolutely everybody. And we hear this in the medical community where patients are non-compliant and you're, you're blaming the patient, but you're really not sitting there thinking about what could I have done differently, right? Um, is there a communication error? Is this not relevant to that person's life, which is really important. And um, especially with older South Asians and often it's generational um, with, um, OTs and other medical providers, people do not question um, those in authority, right? So I don't know how many stories I, I've heard of like OTs going in with these like ridiculous interventions and they're not questioned. They just, you know, the, the person will just comply and then they're not, they're not following through because it's completely not relevant to them, but it's rude to say, no, I don't do this. No, I don't want to do this. They just nod and will do whatever you ask them in front of you. And then afterwards they're like, yeah, this was completely useless. Right. Um, so those, those are just things to keep in mind if, if you're actually asking and looking around and making sure it's relevant for this person. Well, I just wanted to say, I also agree with Sujata and Sakshi that, yeah, the, um the cues of you know kind of picking up what someone's home environment looks like or um even you know just discussing with them about what they really want to do like really asking them like putting that question forward is so important uh, yeah it's so important um and I suppose that if there are any students listening to this um I 
would just want to say that um, please ask a lot of questions. If there's like, if there is any, if there are any questions that you have that um, are around um, working with culturally diverse populations, like please go and pick out your tutors and your lecturers because, you know, it's something that if, um, you know, if they don't know the answer to, then they'll probably, you know, follow up with someone who will know the answer, or that might be an indication to them that, oh, actually, this is really important, and we should be talking about this more, and it will have that, like, you know, follow-on effect. So, yeah, asking a lot of questions, both as a practitioner and a student, is, is really, really important, especially in this cultural context. I want to say that representation does matter. And while us South Asian therapists, we are using our voices to have these discussions, it is really important for OT faculty or the boards of state occupational therapy boards or the AOTA to recognize that there need to be more diverse voices in you know positions of power, in positions where they have in um, effect on what is published in a textbook or what kind of articles are accepted for a journal. You know, um, for example, picking case studies, there are more diverse, you know, uh, eyes bringing input into that because not only are you going to give better intervention to the populations you are trying to treat, you are going to get more buy-in from your own student population from your employee workforce. And again, this is a slow change that is happening in the United States. I see more and more diversity and inclusion communities, and we need to keep this movement going. Um, as people of color, we have to not feel like we are lesser than what we see in textbooks, which is mostly white people. We have to realize we're not lesser than because we speak with an accent. For example, I know so many friends of mine who will speak with Western accents, even though they speak just like me, completely understandable, completely legible, but they feel that to be more likable, they need to sound Western. I feel like people like me just fine, you know, the way I talk. If you're likable, you're likable, <laughs> you know? Also little things like, I refuse to go by Sue or Susie. No, my name is Sujata. You can say my name, you know, taking the time to, so that's again, uh, understanding that. Like for instance, that was a big cultural shift when I came to the US, I had a very tough time calling my geriatric patients by their first name, calling them Bob or Joanne. I would keep saying Mr. Martin, or, you know, I would say, and it was like almost, I couldn't bring the word out of my mouth because of the conditioning of how we are, you know? So it was a little offensive to me to like, hey, do you go by Sue? I'm like, no, because again, that's a very Indian or very South Asian thing that you go by your given name, except like your family. Your family can call you a mashup of lots of names, but that again, that shows a lot of familiarity. So little things like that. Don't ask them, can I call you this? Ask them, what do you go by? Just like now we are becoming more aware of gender identity and how people identify our preferred pronouns. Ask them, what do you go by? You know, or how do I say your name? People will appreciate that. So just, um, just that, you know, ask questions. It's important, but also for people in power, representation matters and it's going to only enrich the profession because you are going to give better care 
your patients will then tell the doctor like oh yeah that ot was good she actually asked me about it or you know because of her i could do this versus cookie cutter stuff that we you know because that is again a hurdle um, we are facing in the united states sometimes with reimbursement cuts and things like that ot's have to constantly like reinforce our role and our relevance and this is how we can also do it by showing that we know how to treat a diverse population and we don't treat everyone you know in cookie cut cutter methods those are all important especially representation um but the name thing you know um i so my maiden last name is roy super easy right you know people don't expect to see this when they hear me talk and and my name is sheila roy but most of us south asians have some pretty long complicated <laughs> complicated names and it's it, anybody that you're working with it's basic respect to ask them their chosen name and if you're not able to pronounce it practice like ask them is this correct i just want to add that i read something very some very stuck with me um i read something i can't remember the person it was someone who was african american who said that if they can say chakowski and schwarzenegger they can say my name you know right. you just have to try you just have to try and so i tell people it's okay keep trying you'll get there you know that's what i say if they're like oh can i call you something so yes you can say chakowski you can say sujata <laughs> yes yes you can because my name despite even even with emails i think even that sort of just shows on to say that how much the person in front of you is sort of actually being respectful of you or sort of wants to connect with you even though because there have been situations where sakshi has been sexy or something of that sort and sometimes oh yeah it's it's been there and even even the alphabet they wouldn't get that right so it's either sks my 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 word my my name has been spelled in so many different ways on an email but you just need to copy paste my name that's all you've got to do and i just go ahead to say that how much this person actually wants to connect and i've actually said a no to a lot of people or not responded to their emails and just ghosted them because that's just go that just goes on to say despite me correcting them saying that um, for your reference my my this is how it's actually spelled and they still don't they still don't get it they still don't get it and they repeat that and to to me that's very disrespectful because this is my name that you're using and you wouldn't like it if i spelled your name wrong at least three or four times when it's actually there you just need to copy paste it yeah and it's not that hard i have worked worked in pediatrics i've had four year olds say my name right properly i've had 92 year olds with dementia say my name right because they liked me they wanted to work with me so if if a 92 year old and a four year old can say it you know you the average person probably can if they try so yeah, i'm so happy with that sakshi i know it says a lot about us and i think we need to put the step down like we need to put our foot down because we are gaslighting ourselves all the time all the time that this is something that we might have been wrong because we come from a place that does not have many resources a place that does not have a lot of evidence or research going on so it's probably our fault so you know probably we need to look down probably this is how things are supposed to be done we are supposed to follow somebody but the idea of taking charge and making your own path and leading the way sort of does not it, it's unacceptable somehow when it comes to when it comes to being a therapist
I think that's the, the perfect place to end. At the very end is the very first thing that absolutely everybody should be doing. Whoever you're working with, take the time to pronounce their names properly. It's the bare minimum. Okay, so I wanna thank you all for being here and sharing your perspectives. Um, so um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share how people listening or watching today can find you. So hi everyone again, uh, thank you for watching. I hope you got something good out of this. My name is Sujata Martin. I am a pelvic floor occupational therapist working in Buffalo, New York. I do in-person care in um, New York and I also do virtual sessions across states in the United States and across borders globally. You can find me on Instagram at concierge pelvic floor. That is kind of a mouthful. So I'll spell it for you. C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, -E, pelvic floor. Or you can find me at pelvicfloorbuffalo.com. Send me a hi. I hope you got something out of this. If you are a person of color and a student or a therapist, I hope this helps you find your voice. If someone says, hey, can I call you this? Say no. And, you know, um, speak out boldly. Speak your truth, you know, unless we take our stance and make our voices heard, no one's going to hear us. So I hope if you're a therapist or a student, you got that out of this. And I hope if you're a clinician, you got some tips to work with someone who doesn't share your cultural origins. So that's my little bit. Again, many thanks from Sujata here at Concierge Public Floor in Buffalo. Um, hey everyone again. Um, uh, you can, if you want to have a chat with me, um, if you're a student or if you're an OT, um, I'd love to definitely have a chat with you if you're an OT, but <laughs> you know, um, um, if you just want to reach out and have a bit of a chat about if you had similar experiences, if you're a student of colour or also um, a South Asian um, OT student, um, I'd love to chat with you about um, some of your experiences. So you can find me on um, Instagram um, at Priya Ravindran. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next for um, South Asian OTs. <laughs> All right, hi everybody again. So this is Dr. Sakshi Tikku uh, and you can find, so I, I practice as a school-based OT, but I also have my private practice in home healthcare and telehealth. Uh, just like Sujata, I practice with clients and students all over the world global OT so that's that's really fun so if you would like to connect with me you can find me on um, Instagram that is sex love and OT so it's sex dot love dot and OT or you can check out the resources or you can still reach out to me uh, on sex love and OT .com. that's really simple right yeah <laughs> All right. And so for those of you tuning in, if you have questions, if you have nice comments, please no trolling. Um, or if you have any requests for stuff that you would like to hear more about in future episodes, um, you can reach out to any of us. Um, my information, my website is otbayarea.com. Um, and I'm also on Instagram at otbayarea. So um, I provide uh, wellness and mental health resources and information. Um, I also uh, try my best to elevate 
BIPOC OT voices. Um, so I have um, a group there and I actually just started a um, BIPOC OT directory for US-based uh, practitioners so we can refer out and really get that like culturally relevant care, um, find people that we can um, or refer people um, that are trustworthy, relatable, and like try to fill in some of those gaps in care. So definitely reach out and hopefully we'll be seeing you all again soon.